We are in 2 Peter chapter 1. We're looking at verses 16 through 21. First, 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. The title of the service is The Lamp in the Darkness. I've got to look up because I always forget what it is. I don't know who decided to have titles anyway, but... 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Hear the word of the Lord. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses, excuse me, eyewitnesses, I must be getting older. <clears throat> we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to Him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Verse 19. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. May God add a blessing to the reading of His Holy Word this morning. Peter's about to die at the hands of Nero. Having a pastor's heart, he wanted to communicate, leave behind words of encouragement and words of warning that will help the churches in Asia Minor walk through the difficulties of life. We said his first letter was more of of words of encouragement to the church who were living uh, in the midst of trials and persecution and suffering. The second letter, 2 Peter, was a letter of warning. It seems that the false teachers had infiltrated the church, corrupting the gospel, twisting and distorting the scriptures, and downplaying the the coming of Jesus, the eternal judgment of God. And Peter's concern is not only them downplaying that, but their lives then were not reflective of the holiness of God. Our text this morning, Peter goes on the offensive. He begins to deal with some of the things that the teachers and the false teachers and their deceptions were spreading through the church. I'll set the stage quickly. Second Peter opens up with the truth that, that our faith in Christ is of equal standing with the apostles. And the reason it is is because his faith, our faith, is in the righteousness of Christ. He alone, Jesus, he alone lived a perfect sinless life. He alone then could atone for sins. Right? So when Jesus dies on the cross, He dies for our sins. He is the perfect, spotless Lamb of God and His righteousness has been imputed, as we talked about, or counted to us. He alone lived that perfect life, so therefore He alone could do it. And because of that truth and because of our faith in that Gospel, He has given to us, Peter tells us, His precious promises... And now we become partakers of His divine nature through the Holy Spirit 
that dwells within us. And He gives us now the power, Peter says, because of our faith and all that Jesus has done, He gives us the power now to live a holy life. Verses 5-7 through seven speaks of the different virtues, different um, additions we are to have in our faith. Supplement your faith, he says, with virtue and knowledge and self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly love, Philadelphia, and, and agape love, sacrificial love. And Peter will go on to say in that chapter that this growing in your faith is proof or demonstrates that God's divine nature is dwelling within you. And if, and if, and if that is not the case, he says, you have forgotten the gospel. You have forgotten that the gospel not only saves you, but is the gospel that transforms you. We talked about that already. And he goes on to warn, as any pastor would warn his people, that if you, if you live a life of sin and rebellion, you need to question your salvation. Because sin and rebellion and, and, and security in your salvation don't sleep in the same bed. The person who claims to be a child of God, but whose character and conduct gives no evidence of spiritual growth, is deceiving themselves. Now, we're not talking about works-based salvation. We don't see the fruit and say, that fruit, now, you know, now that I have produced this fruit, that will bring me somehow into a right relationship with God. We're not saying that. We're saying that faith, Christ alone, gives us salvation or has you know, Jesus alone dies for our sins. But when that reality comes to a heart in genuineness, a life is changed. Your life is changed. And the fruit of your life, the fruit of your growing in godliness, is evidence of a life that has been changed by the gospel. This is by faith alone in Christ. We don't keep our salvation. We don't save ourselves. God keeps us and holds us. But it's our responsibility to be sure that the marks of a believer is part of our lives. And he warns his brothers and sisters. And what I find so interesting as we move into this text, as I was just reading it and kind of dwelling on it and praying over it, is Peter is about to warn his brothers and sisters about deception in the church, false teachers that were deceiving. But he opens up his epistle, his letter, with warning brothers and sisters about their own deception. Almost to say, look, before we take the log out of, you know, you know, before we take the speck out of somebody else's eye, take the log out of your own eye. That we can deceive ourselves. And we have to be careful. And Peter deals with that deception. And then he wants to go on the offensive and deal with the deception of the false teachers, which brings us to our text. You take outlines. I like outlines. If this doesn't mean nothing to you, just... Go to sleep for a minute. But here's my outline. Two main points, the transfiguration of Christ. We'll see sight and sound, what they saw, what they heard at the transfiguration, why that's so important. And then the preeminence of Scripture. We're going to see four things uh, in the, 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 the role of Scripture. We're going to see the confirmation of Scripture, interpretation, inspiration, and authority. That's where we're headed to today. So if you want to write that down, that's where we're going. First, the transfiguration of Christ. Peter writes, verse 16, For we did not... He's on the offensive now. He wants to talk about what, what the false teachers were teaching. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming. That's the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Verse 17, For when He received honor and glory, glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to Him by the majestic glory, that's just another name for God, 
This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We, verse 18, heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. So it's evidently, the false teachers were coming up with all kinds of cleverly devised myths. They were probably saying the same thing about Peter, that Peter's teaching and the things that Peter saw and heard were cleverly devised myths. And Peter's saying, no, 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 no. We were eyewitnesses. We heard and we saw. And if you notice in your text, if you have your Bibles open in First Peter, before we get to verse 16, Peter says, I. He uses the singular. Uh, and he uses, I will remind you. I think it's only right. I will make every effort. And now in verses 16 through 18, the first person plural is used. He says, we told you. We were witnesses. We ourselves heard this voice when we were with him. It goes from I to we to say, look, it's not just me. It was we. It was the three apostles who were up on that mountain in which he's talking about, this transfiguration of Christ, that the testimony doesn't rely on simply what I saw and heard, but we were all there. We were all there. And, and this account, this, um, this, this transfiguration account is in all three uh, uh, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Synoptic means similar. And Peter uses, I want you to see this, Peter uses this incident in the life and ministry of Jesus to declare the truth to these false teachers about who Jesus is and the coming of the Lord Jesus and the promise of His coming. There are many incidences that Peter could have used, but he chose the transfiguration, the time when he was up on the mountaintop with James and John. Turn with me to Matthew. The Gospel according to Matthew. We'll turn to that one. As I said, it's in, it's in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. But Matthew 17, you will find this incident in which Peter is talking about. Matthew chapter 17. This is what Peter's talking about to declare who Jesus is and the, re, the, the fact of his return. Listen to what it says. Matthew 17. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led him up a mountain a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses, Elijah, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, is it good that we are here? If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to them. Listen to him. Verse 8. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. That would freak me out too. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus alone. Now the term transfigure or transfigured Metamorpho, metamorphosis, where we get that, meta meaning change, morphos meaning body and form, happens on this mountain. Luke tells us that while they were praying, Jesus' face appeared, his, it was altered, he says, and his clothing became dazzling white. Mark says his garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no laundry on earth can whiten them. Literally, glory is unveiled. This Jesus who they were ministering to goes up to this mountaintop and had all the characteristics of a man, right? He got tired, he got, he, he, you know, he slept, 
Um, it was in human form. He wasn't, you know, you see some of the pictures with his halos. Jesus did not walk around with a halo over his head like, that's him. I could see him in the crowd. See the halo? That's not, you know, he looked like anyone else from that day and that time. But all of a sudden, this intrinsic glory is, is, is burning through. Like the butterfly or the caterpillar who, who changes not from the outside in but from the inside out. And it's sort of like the Father turned on this infinite light bulb shining, the glory of, of God shining forth from Jesus. This glory shone through His garments, His face, His, his whole... The, 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 the humanity of Christ kind of just cracks open. And the glory of God is shine, or shining through Jesus. In that brief moment, the essence of who Jesus is shines through. And some may think, you know what? All right, I see that in all kinds of Star Trek and Spy Spy. What does that, what does that matter? Folks, James, John, and Peter knew exactly what that meant. That was a declaration of the God man. In fact, glory in the Old Testament described God dwelling among His people called the Shekinah glory. Maybe some of you heard that. In Exodus 40, chapter 34, a cloud covers this tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord, the presence of God, fills the temple so much so that Moses couldn't even go in. In 1 Kings 8, Solomon builds the temple and what happens? The Shekinah glory, the glory of God comes and fills, a cloud comes and fills the temple. Moses, when he is on Mount Sinai, God comes down on the mountain, and what do we see in that passage, Exodus 33? A cloud. God comes, to a cl- comes in a cloud, the Shekinah glory, and, and, and speaks to Moses, the voice of God through this cloud. And Moses says, you know what? Uh, let me see your glory. Show me your perfect and your brilliant and your, your infinite, unimaginable beauty, your glory. And God says, no. While I'm passing by, Moses, I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I pass. Exodus 33, 23 says, Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen because no man can see me and live. And now centuries later, we're on a high mountain. There's a cloud. There's a voice. There is bright, uh, bright blinding glory. Even Moses is there. Can't mistake him what they were trying to say. Now Moses reflected the glory as the sun is reflected off the moon. Jesus, the intrinsic glory, comes from within him, shining forth. This unsurpassable, unapproachable glory of God is revealed and unveiled in Christ. Why is that so important? I'll tell you why. The first things false teachers will teach you, the first things false teachers and cults will teach you, is something very different from what the Bible says who Jesus is. They don't hold to what the Scriptures say Jesus is, who Jesus is. Jehovah Witnesses say that He's a created being. He's not God. He's the archangel Michael who became a man. Peter and James and John would say, no, no, no. The Mormons, they call him the Son of God, but they say he's a polygamous man. He's the half-brother of Lucifer who became one of many gods. In fact, 
Jesus was created through the procreation of the Father and Mary. That's what they'll teach you. Scientologists talk about Jesus being an implant forced upon a thetan, T-H-E-T-A-N, a million years ago. And you say, what does that mean? I don't know. I stopped using stuff like that a long time ago. I don't know what that means, but it means something to them. Hindus, Jesus is one of many avatars, deities. But of course, my favorite one is the Canadian nudist arsonist group. If you haven't heard of them, they're called the Bakhobors. D-O-U, Dokhobors. D-O-U-K-H-O-B-O-R-S. Okay, they started in Russia. They're in Canada. They're a nudist Canadian arsonist because they say that Jesus... His name is code word for getting high on hallucinogenics and lighting fires. I mean, if you're going to join a cult, that would be a pretty cool one. You know what I mean? But, you know, Baha, Jesus is a manifestation of God like, like Buddha and like Krishna. Buddhists will tell you he's an enlightened man. Muslims will tell you that he's a prophet, a good man, but not quite like Muhammad. Peter is telling us, I saw and I heard God being revealed in Christ. He is the one true living God. Jesus Christ himself, make no mistake, made it absolutely crystal clear that he is God incarnate. Very clear. John 10. He tells the religious leaders, I and the Father are one. Jews picked up stones to stone him. And Jesus says, why are you throwing stones at me? Is it because of all the work that I did? And the Jews said to him, it's not for the good works that you're doing, we're stoning you, but for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself God. Made it really clear. They got it. They didn't like it, but they got it. Only God can forgive sins. Every major religion will tell you. And Jesus says, I have authority in heaven to forgive sins. He tells the paraplegic, Your son, your sins are forgiven. They wanted to kill him for that too. Only God should be worshipped. Jesus is worshipped and receives worship. Only God will judge mankind. Jesus says, all judgment's been given to me. He has authority to judge. He is worshipped. He's even worshipped by his mother and his brothers. Now some of you have some moms that might worship you. Because you have deceived them into thinking how great you are. But your brothers and sisters won't do it. Right? My brothers, my they know me, right? And they're like, no, no. God, no, we're not. No way, Lou. Uh uh-uh. uh. I remember back in high school, you know. It didn't have to go that far, really, but they remember those days, you know what I mean? Jesus made it clear. He tells the Jewish people, the Hebrews and the and the religious leaders, I say to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he. You will die in your sins. So it's not like, what does it really matter who Jesus is? Jesus says, unless you believe that I am, that's the eternal name of God. No beginning, no end. I'm eternal. Unless you believe that I am, He, you will die in your sins. How important is it? Eternal damnation. That's how important it is. You just can't go, oh, it doesn't really matter. You know who Jesus is to you, Jesus to me. No, 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 no. It matters. Before Abraham was, Jesus said, I am. Always was, eternal past, eternal future. A sacred name. And again, what they want to do, they picked up stones because they want to kill him. 
So let me, let me tie this together for you. At the transfiguration, Jesus declares clearly that he is God incarnate. There's glory, there's cloud, there's a voice from heaven. This is my son. Everyone knew it at, in that day. Turn to Matthew 17 if you're still there. Look, look with me and I'll show you why that his transfiguration not only declared that he is God, but the transfiguration also declared that he's coming back as the king. Matthew 17. If you're there, just go up a couple of verses to 16, the end of 16. Jesus, by the way, this incident that Jesus is teaching about discipleship in all three of the Synoptic Gospel comes right before the transfiguration. As if the Gospel writers are trying to say it's connected. You've got discipleship and transfiguration. Let me even put it together for you. Chapter 16 now, just go up a couple of verses. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We're going to talk about that today in Gospel 301 as a plug, okay? For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? So Jesus is saying, look, if you want to follow me, it's not, it's not about you, it's about me. It's about relinquishing your rights. It's about giving up your wants. It's about laying down your, your, you know, your life for me. Come and follow me. That's what he's saying. In fact, pick up your cross. I'm going to the cross. I am going to die. My kingdom is going to be ushered in in vulnerability and weakness on the cross of Calvary. I will die. And if you want to follow me, you may bear your own cross and follow me. That's what you have to do. But then in verse 27, he says, it's not always going to be that way. See what he says in verse 27? For the Son of Man is going to come, I'm coming with my angels, in His glory of His Father, and He will repay each person according to what He has done. In other words, there will be judgment. I'm coming back. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. No more pain, injustice, disease. Life will be swallowed up. The King of glory, the judge, will come back. I'm coming again. It's not always going to be that way, disciples. It's not always going to be weak. This is going to be in kingdom glory. It's going to happen. Then he goes on to say in verse 28, I say to you, he's talking to his disciples, there's some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Hmm. Now, I don't think it takes rocket science to figure out that People that he spoke to are dead. I didn't see anybody 2,000. We got some people older folks, but 2,000 years old, no. So, what does he mean? Some of you are going to see my kingdom come before you die. Well, the word kingdom, baselia, is used in the New Testament and is used as the kingdom itself, but also of the number one reason of the king himself. It talks about the splendor, majesty, and the royal majesty of the king. And what Jesus is saying is, there are some of you that see this, hear this, are my disciples, and you will see, before you die, the coming of the King, of the majesty, of the beauty. And right after he speaks those words, what happens? The transfiguration. As if God was showing them the King assuring them, giving them a foretaste of the future kingdom. There were those, Matthew, excuse me, John, James, and Peter, who saw 
that day in the transfiguration, the glory of Christ revealed, pointing to the future coming kingdom when he will put everything right. There was a foretaste. It was a view. It was, it, was, it, was a, it, was, it was looking into the future what someday will happen. So Peter, the apostle Peter, says to the false teachers, listen, this is not about myths. It's not devised tales. It's not, you know, it's not something that we've made up. We saw it. We heard it. We have a foretaste and a shadow of the coming king. He showed it to us. And therefore, he's going to come. Transfiguration of Christ. Then he goes into the confirmation or the, or the preeminence of Scripture. Look at with me, verse 19, back in Second Peter. So you see how that, I want you to see how that transfiguration is a declaration of who he is and a foretaste, a shadow, pointing to the coming of Christ. You see, the people in, and we'll get to it later on, the people in Second Peter that Peter was writing to were telling, the false teachers were telling the church, Christ is not coming back. Look at what's going on. Everything is going on as usual. We have that saying today. Folks, listen. The reason Jesus did not come back today and judge the world is so that you can be here and repent of your sins. It's not that His judgment, He will say, is because He doesn't care. It's because He's patient, not wanting anyone to perish. So if you're here today, it's God's grace in your life. Turn from your sins and trust Jesus Christ. So you don't spend eternity away from Him in hell. But you will be in eternity having eternal life in Christ, enjoying the new heavens and a new earth because of all that Jesus has done. It's the patience of God that you're here this morning. It is the love of God that you're here this morning. It is the goodness of God to hear the gospel message to turn and trust Jesus Christ. But people in that day, just like today, oh, we woke up today, it's no different. Maybe a little cold and rainy and damp for Memorial Day. But, you know, we've had them before. Hmm. It's the patience of God, the kindness of God, the Bible says, that leads us to repentance. So, Peter wants to talk about Scripture, verse 19. He says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Some of your, some of your translations have. Okay? He says in verse 19, we have something more sure, more fully, uh, 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 fully confirmed, to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What Peter is saying, the sights and sounds that the apostles heard at the transfigurations confirms and clarifies all the teaching of the Old Testament, particularly the prophet's teaching about and, and declaring about the deity of Christ and the coming of Christ. And Peter wants his readers to know that everything he saw and he interpreted about the coming of Christ rests not on fables and fairy tales of just what he saw, but the strength of the Bible, the Hebrew Old Testament prophets and proclamation of God. And so that even though Peter says, this is what I saw and this is what I heard and this is what it means... We have something more sure, more reliable. John MacArthur writes this in his, in his uh, commentary on this. The Word of God is more reliable, is a more reliable verification of the teaching about the person, atonement, and second coming of Christ than even the genuine first-hand experiences of the apostles themselves. You hear what he's saying? 
I can hear people in Peter's day. Oh, yeah, we heard that. And you know what? If you could show us somebody who has this light bulb shining from his chest, you know, and, and a cloud coming down, and we can hear God say that, we'll believe that. And Peter's like, listen, it's not simply about my eyewitness. It's about what God has declared in his word. It's what God has declared in his word. That is more sure, fully confirms what Jesus, who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do and his coming again. The word made sure fully, uh, or fully confirmed comes from a Greek word uh, meaning firm and stable. I mean, think about what... Listen, somebody said to me, you can either believe what you just saw took place and heard with your ears and you just saw. That has less credibility, or I wouldn't say less credibility. What's more sure than that is something someone wrote 2,000 years ago. I would go with what I saw, but Peter has to flip. Because Peter is combating false teaching. And the reason why Peter is saying this is more fully, this is more confirmed, this is made sure from the Old Testament prophets and teaching about Jesus is because false teachers elevate experience over the Word of God. It happened then, it happens now. It happens then and it happens now. And the principle is Scripture before experience. Now, experience has its place. The voice of God speaking to us today has its place. Because what happens is sometimes you say, there's no experience, there's only Scripture, and we're not listening to the voice of God. And then we have only experience and no Scripture. And then you become like some crazy people, I won't mention anybody, but like Benny Hinn, and some of the other, some of the other people that are based... Totally on experience. What they'll do is they'll tell you everything to get you all jacked up emotionally. What's going to happen an hour? And then finally he goes like this and everyone does exactly what he told them they were going to do for the past two and a half hours. Get an emotional frenzy. That's what false teachers do. Or you get a guy like Sid Roth. That guy, no matter what experience you had, there is no interpretation. There is no verification. You could say, look, I woke up and this giant pig spoke to me and he said, you need, they're like, wow, tell us more. I'm like, are you kidding me? I listened to the program only because I want to break the, you know, the, and I, you know, I just keep listening to this guy. I don't know why. Don't do that. But I just get madder and madder every time I hear him. There is no verification. There's no scripture support. It's totally experiential base. God took me to heaven. God took me down to heaven. God took me to the third heaven, the fifth heaven, the ninth heaven. God said this. God said that. He showed me this. I'm like, where are you getting this stuff from? You don't know if it's a bad cheeseburger you ate or a real dream. You know, like, at what point? And that's the, that's the problem with elevating experience over the Word of God. They, 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 they elevate that. And experience could be deceptive. We have to stand firmly, Peter says, on the Word of God. Another reason, people, that you should not uh, elevate experience over Scripture is it's the Word of God that the Bible says that God illuminates our hearts. When we talk about illuminating, we're talking about how God shows us and speaks to us and reveals to us and enables us to understand the things of God. Look what he says in verse 19b. To which you will do well to pay attention... What are you talking about? It's the prophetic word, as, as the, the, the prophet's speaking, we'll talk about what the, how that happens. Uh, what you'll do is pay attention to that as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. The day he's talking about is the second coming of Christ, when Jesus will establish his eternal kingdom. The morning star, translate, is, is a word that means light bringer. 
So at the second coming, he says, you know what? Christ is going to reveal to us he is the morning star. All the, 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 the murky, which, which means um, uh, the word dark place, dark places, the murky is, is a, 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 a swampy area. That's where that we get that word from. So we're living in this dark life. And when Jesus comes back in his second coming, the light will shine. There'll be no dark, murky areas of our life. We will see because we will see him face to face. So I guess the, the application for us today is that when dark times come in your life and you have no one to turn to and you need something or someone to speak with authority and wisdom into your life, if not the word of God, you're speaking to yourself. You're counting and relying on yourself. Or you're, 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 you're caring and you're, and you're relying upon others and not God. I say this in love, but you don't have the power to transform yourself. You certainly don't have the power to forgive yourself. It is God that transforms. It is God that forgives. It is God that speaks to us. He is the one that forgives and speaks to us. And Peter's point was that until the Lord returns, his readers should pay attention to the Scripture. Now, when Peter's penning this, writing this letter to the churches in Asia Minor, he's not going, all right, this is going in the Bible. I better be careful about my grammar. He's just writing a letter. It became part of the canon after he wrote this. He's talking about the Old Testament Scriptures. We would say now in the New Testament that both Scriptures have authority, which we'll talk about that. But Peter is saying, look what is absolutely confirmed, even though I saw it and everything I saw and heard is absolutely true. Man, I have the Word of God that has been speaking about what took place up in that mountain for hundreds of years. I could stand on that. Confirmation of Scripture. Look at the interpretation, verse 20. He says, knowing this, first of all, what you need to know is that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter's concern is not so much the student of the Scripture, but the revelation of God, how God revealed Himself in Scripture. And Peter is saying is the revelation of God, the unveiling of God in the Bible, was given by God, and the interpretation of those events was also given by God. Okay? So in other words, what I'm saying is the man of God, the prophet of God, those who are writing Scripture, primarily prophets in the Old Testament, Apostles in New Testament, as they were writing Scripture, they were to reveal the Word of God and interpret the work of God in their generation, in their, in their culture, in their time, and what was going on when God was speaking to that generation. That's what he means. So we can't just take the Bible and speak and say, it could say anything I want. False teachers will take Scripture out of context. Right? Now, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't study the Bible. That we shouldn't understand and interpret the Bible. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is the Scriptures are the Word of God and interpreted by God. That man doesn't get to say what he wants it to say. God does. Because it originates with him. Peter's responding to false teachers. 
who misrepresents the revelations of God, the unveiling of God. And what Peter is insisting here is that revelation of God and the interpretation of God are one piece and that they both belong to God. So in other words, the visions, the dreams, what takes place as people are recording Scripture, the words they use, which we'll look at in a minute, and the interpretation of what God is saying through those words does not belong to man but belongs to God. So we just can't rip, as I said, things out of context and, and say whatever we want it to say. I would go so far to say is that the Bible must be interpreted, since it's the work of God, in light of all the Bible. You could get the Bible to prove anything you want. As someone once said, isolated text, apart from context, become pretexts. It's called good hermeneutics, understanding Scripture, trying to understand what God was saying. Not me reading into it. That's why we believe in expository preaching. There is one interpretation of Scripture. Many applications. Several illustrations. One interpretation of the Bible. I'm not saying we get it right all the time. I know I don't. Neither do you. And neither does any Bible teacher. But a good Bible teacher, if you're reading your Bible, what they call hermeneutics, which is the art and science of interpreting passages of Scripture... We need to know what did the author write and what were those reading it would have understood. What was God trying to communicate at the time and the place in which the Scripture was written? Before we take it to today, what did God say in the context? That's called good hermeneutics. Like the pastor who was broken down on the side of the road and and he went into a a local pub to to, to call a a tow truck and he sees a guy there named Jim as somebody he knew that used to be dressed really nice but he was like torn clothes, drunk, falling down. He's like, Jim, what happened to you? He told him a sad story, you know, couldn't get any money, my investments went down, you know, no bailout money from me and the pastor said, listen, dude, you need to go read your Bible. You go home, you open up your Bible and you stick your finger in that Bible and you'll have your answer. The guy went home and did that. About a month later, the pastor runs into Jim again. Gucci watch, fancy car, nice clothes. Jim, what happened? He goes, Pastor, I owe it all to you. I did just what you told me. I went home, immediately opened up my Bible, stuck my finger right in there, and it said, chapter 11. I followed your advice. All right, never mind. Okay. All right, all right. Just pick stuff out of the context and apply it any way you want, right? Interpretation. Inspiration. Look what he says. Same verse. When we talk about inspiration, we're talking about the the way in which, or or the, the miracle way in which God gives us the Scripture. That's what Peter's talking about. Now saying it's not it's not a, it's not just about me it's not about what I say it's not about the false teacher it's what God has said and the fact that God has communicated to us is true in His Word but it's the process by which He has communicated or the method is what Peter's talking about Peter says look what he says men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit the word carried along or I think the New American Standard has moved. By is the word thero. It means driven. It's where we get our word ferry. It, it is a, a sailing term used to describe the wind blowing in a sail. In essence, what Peter is saying is the writers of Scripture were ferried along by the Holy Spirit and arrived at their destination. A good illustration, actually a good scriptural illustration, you don't have to turn there, I will, but it's in Acts chapter 27. 
the same word is used. Peter is, excuse me, Paul is on his way to Rome. And while he was on, um, while he set sail for Rome, a storm happened at the sea. Now when the south wind blew, Acts 27, 13, now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon as a strong wind called the nor'easter struck down the, struck, excuse me, struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Pharaoh, same word. So in other words, we're at the ship, everything's going great, it's a light wind, and all of a sudden the wind comes and, and, and is, you know, dragging the ship, they pull down the sails and allow the wind to carry the ship to its destination. And Peter says that's the same way God speaks and spoke. And we have the Scripture. He spoke through the writers, carried them along so that every word spoken by them was God's. It's a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in which He superintends human authors of Scripture so that they record without error God's revelation to us. It doesn't mean they were robots. They were carried along. God breathed them, which we'll look at in a minute. And, and we see in Scripture that God used, spoke, moved along the writers of Scripture using their personalities, using their, their cultural backgrounds, um, using their, their, their experiences to give us the perfect Word of God. Matthew. The Gospel according to Matthew. He's a Jewish man understood Jewish law, grew up in a Jewish home. You read his account of the Gospel and you'll see all kind of Jewish flavor. He talks about, he has the, the most in his uh, account of the Gospel of the Jewish Old Testament writings. If you read the Gospels, you'll know that one of the uh, apostles was Peter, pulled out his sword at the end of Jesus' life before he was crucified and cut the ear off of a high priest's uh, servant. Only one of the four Gospels says that Jesus picked up his ear and healed him. It was Luke. Why? Because Luke's a doctor. He would have thought that was pretty cool. Like, wow, you know? So, Paul, a scholar of Greek literature, he quotes Greek poets. So what Peter is saying is God moved the writers along so that that in which they communicate is His Word, but He uses their experience, cultural context, their personality to communicate exactly what He wanted. Theologians call, it, theologians call this verbal plenary inspiration. That's a big $5 word. I've earned my keep today. The word verbal means that it's not just the ideas of Scripture, it's the words of Scripture, the verb tenses of Scripture, every jot and tittle Jesus says, the Word of God, everything from, from the letter to the word, to the tense, was written and carried along and given to us by the Word of God. That's why sometimes if you read your Bibles and you have a red letter edition, that's cool, see what Jesus said. But please don't think that that has more authority than the rest of your Bible. Your whole Bible, that's what plenary means. Verbal, the words, not just the meanings. Plenary means all. All of Scripture is inspired, Peter says. All of Scripture. Not some of it more inspired than others, all of Scripture is inspired. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture. How much? 
All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable to teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be complete, competent, equipped for every good work. Breathed out. Literally, Theos Nustos. Breath, God breathed. He spoke like we take in air and as we breathe and syllables and consonants come out of our mouth, God breathes and we have Genesis to Revelation. That's what he's saying. And he doesn't mean inspired like, oh, that was such a nice Hallmark card. I am so moved. That's not what he means. God breathe. God breathe. Every cult will tell you, every false teacher will tell you that their books and their writings you need in order to understand the Bible. That's what they'll tell you. Right? I mean, I love to read books and I read all kinds of books. I'm reading all the time. But nothing comes up to the sacred scripture. Jehovah Witnesses, you need the Watchtower. If you don't understand, read the Watchtower. It'll make sense to you. You're a Mormon, doctrine of pearl of great price. We know, we interpret it, this is what it means. If you're from a Catholic background, the church tradition. You won't understand that. You have to understand this. Christian, too, even Protestants will hold up the, the Westminster Confession or the, the Osberg Confession. Now, that stuff is good. Nothing is in line with Scripture. Only the Bible is God-breathed. Everything else must be interpreted through the inspiration of Scripture. Impostors and false teachers will say, before you read, you need this. But let me ask you a question. What if, what if you opened your email in the morning or you got a text message in the morning or your phone rang in the morning and literally God was calling you? You'd be like, yo, I better get this email. All the other ones can wait, right? I better respond to this text messages. I'm going to answer the phone because I've got some questions. God's already spoke. God's already answered many questions. He wants to meet with you. He wants to speak to you. He wants you to open His Word. I'm going to challenge you. Read your Scripture. Not just because you have to, Pastor Lou said, but because you get to. What a privilege it is that we have God's Word in our hand. That we can hold on to His promises. That we can be encouraged by His words to us. That we can know that He loves us eternally. That we could serve and love and treasure Him through His Word. It brings me to my last point. And that's the authority of Scripture. Look at verse 20 again. 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke what? From God. Carried along by the Spirit. Don't miss those little words. Spoke from God. Don't go right over that. It speaks of authority. Authority is the power and the weight of the Scriptures that which they possess. Every word spoken... Every word spoken stands, or, or the words that are spoken behind those words, stands the ones who speaks it. It is the person himself, their knowledge, their character, their, their position that determines whether you will listen or not to the word. A judge who pronounces judgment and a sentence has the authority and then they come and take you. A police officer that's standing in a road and directing traffic has the authority invested in by the state of New York. We will listen. God speaks. And behind every word is the authority of God. It carries His authority. Psalm 19.7, wonderful description of the Word of God. This is what it says. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, 
rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. What are those adjectives describing other than the Word of God? God Himself. He is good. He is sure. He is right. He is pure. He is clean. He is righteous. The Word of God reveals the nature of God and has the authority of God behind it. Let me tell you something a little bit more, maybe more, so you can understand. It's maybe a little more applicable to, to your life, maybe, maybe to mine too, or, or definitely to mine. I'm going to tell you this illustration that's to do with me. When I came through a, a hardcore alcohol and drug addiction and getting the help that I needed to get, one of the things that plagued me was the idea that I had to rely upon something or someone else. Now, please hear me. I am not saying that accountability, that 12-step groups that uh, celebrate redemption and celebrate recovery programs are bad. They are good and necessary. Okay? Make that really clear. But one of the things that plagued me is I, my life was such a mess. I was on such a roller coaster in life that I wanted something that was stable, secure, trustworthy, that would never change. Whether I can get out of my house or not out of my house. Whether I can go get to a chocolate bar or go to an accountability group. All those things are good. But what I wanted in my life, something I knew that was absolutely trustworthy and stable and firm. And brothers and sisters, I found that in Christ and in His Word. Your Word I have hidden in my heart that I may not sin against thee. It was in the Word of God. Now, all those things are good. But the Word of God declares the authority of God because the one who speaks is trustworthy Someone you can rely upon and is on a solid foundation because the Word, we're not worshiping the Word, but the God of the Word who is stable and trustworthy. I knew if I was going to get inside, I knew if I was going to get my life in order, it had to be outside of me. And folks, some of you, if I may say, some of you life is like that because the Word of God is not your foundation. And life seems to really throw you. And, you know, some things we just can't stop. We're, 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 you know, we're in this life and we're getting all kinds of circumstances that are surrounding us. Some of it thrown at us. Some of us, we make mistakes and we do things that are dumb and stupid. But let me tell you something. Unless you're planted and secured in the Lord and in His Word, you're going to be tossed to and fro. The Word is a reflection of God Himself and He can be trusted because He, it can be trusted because He can be trusted. Jesus trusted the Word of God. Jesus, when under Satan's attack, said, It is written. Gafo, perfect tense. It has already and firmly been written and will never be, need to be changed nor repeated. It is written. In a world that is changing, we need the Word of God. We need something stable in, finan- in our financial ruins, in our political upheaval, in our culture. God's Word does not change because God does not change. I'm going to tell you a story as the band comes up. Now listen to this story. I was in a conference. Um, I think it was about two years ago. I was in a pastor's conference in, um, I think it was in Chicago. And there was a man by the name of Brian Chapel. Brian Chapel was the president of Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. And this, this, this plenary speaker... Brian Chapel, Dr. Chapel, spoke about a, told us a story about a man who was in seminary with him who went off to be a youth pastor. 
And while he was in a, being a youth pastor, he told Dr. Ch- uh, Chapel this story. And I want to communicate it to you because I think this wraps it up for us. He said to, to Dr. Chapel, he said, you know what? When I was a youth pastor, uh, what I did one time is I went to the home in which we were going to meet. And I went downstairs into that home before all the teenagers got there. And what we did is we set up a circle of chairs. And now in every chair we put down a scripture verse on all the chairs. And what I wanted to do is I wanted to teach the kids that when God speaks, it's really Him speaking to you. So when all the kids got there, we took one kid and we blindfolded her and we put her in a chair. And we said, look, tell us, and everybody else sat around with the scripture. They said, tell us, tell us something that, that you've been hurt by. Or tell us something that is troubling you. And he said, when the first couple, they couldn't think of anything. They didn't want to be embarrassed. Oh, I need to get an A on my test, he said, and, you know, things like that. He said, but then we put this young girl, a new girl, and we sat her in the chair and we blindfolded her. Let me tell you what she said. The woman blindfolded, the other people sitting around. First thing she said is, I am so miserable, I don't know if I can stand my life anymore. The room went silent. People were looking around, didn't know what to say. Until one person took that scripture lesson, scripture verse on their chair and said, I am faithful. I will not allow you to be tempted above what you are able, but will with the temptation provide a way of escape that you could stand up under it. Then she said, nobody cares about me. And some other teen said, I have loved you with an everlasting love and I have called you with loving kindness. Then in a rage, she said, in a rage, she said, you do not understand. My parents kicked me out last night and they don't even want me back. And one of the kids said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. They took the blindfold off her and she was crying. And she said, I have a question. She told the youth pastor, I have a question. Why doesn't God really talk to me that way? And the youth pastor took her by the hand and said, sweetie, he does. And he just did. This is the word of God himself. This was God talking to you. And Dr. Chapel at this conference I was at said this. You know, we fail to see that sometimes we think if God would just write his message to me in the clouds, that would be enough to, or to speak to me in the thunder. But if he would send his message in the clouds, it would blow away. And if he would speak to me in the thunder, it would fade away. So God decided to write it down and put it in a book. And I will give it to you and you can read it all the time and take it wherever you go. Do we open up the Word of God like that? Are you here this morning, you're not really sure about your relationship with Jesus? You're not really sure whether or not you're a Christian? Open the Word of God. Read the Gospel. Read the epistles. Let God speak to you. Maybe you're a Christian, you have not really took seriously reading Scripture. I don't want to guilt you into reading the Bible. You don't have to. You get to. You get to hear God's voice and God speak to you through His Word. I want, to, I want to encourage you, if you're not a Christian, to read the Word of God. If you're a believer, get back into the Word of God. Let God speak to you. We don't worship the Bible, we worship the God of the Bible, who revealed Himself as the one true and living God, who died an atoning death for your sins and rose again. He is coming back. His patience, His kindness leads us to repentance.
you have never repented, today is a day. Turn from your sins and trust Jesus. All that He's done on the cross for you. Let's pray. Father, just thank You for Your Word this morning. Thank You, God, that You did not leave us to our own sinful desires, our own wicked thinking, Lord, but You have revealed Your truth to us in Your Word. Help us to be good interpreters of that, that we may apply it correctly. Father, we pray that You would speak to us through Your Word. Father, we want to hear the the voice in our hearts. We know Your Spirit dwells within us and speaks to us. But Lord, we know that the filter is Your Word. So we pray that as we hear the voice of Jesus, we'll know it's Him because we've been in His Word. Father, I want to pray for someone here today that does not know You, that has never given the Bible an opportunity that has never really opened your word to hear your voice. Maybe they're struggling with something today. Maybe there's something in their life that they they, they seem bewildered and not really knowing where to turn. Father, I pray, we pray, your spirit would bring them to the place of Scripture that you would speak to their hearts. And Lord, for your people, may we read your word, may we be encouraged by your word, may we hear your voice through your word, and may the Spirit of God use it mightily for your glory and our joy. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.